So we continue on today with our Jesus Encounters series. And just to remind some of you, for others, maybe you're not aware, but what, what we're doing with the series is we're, we're looking at Jesus uh, and his dealings with people and those, those people and their, their encounter with the Lord. And we're, we're looking at them as uh, kind of e- examples. So we're looking at them, but we're sort of looking beyond them as well to see how they, they represent um, the different you know, experiences that we ourselves would have in life. And so as we see how Jesus uh, dealt with them and ministered to them and helped them uh, and answered them, then we see how the Lord ministers to us today as well. So our, uh, our title today for this message is Jesus and those who grieve, because of course we have uh, the story here of the two grieving sisters, uh, Martha and Mary. So that's um, kind of the background for our teaching here. Now, no one disagrees that there's something wrong with the world. Actually, most people, of course, agree that there are uh, many things wrong with the world. Yet out of all that's wrong in the world, there's nothing we sense to be more wrong than death. And there's nothing that's caused more grief than death. And of course, that has just been the, the case from the very beginning, and it, it never changes. You know, the, the interesting thing, when you think about death, you know, as, as human being, beings, we adapt pretty well to things. And, you know, you, you would think that, you know, even very difficult things, you, you, eventually you adapt to them. But, but death is the one thing that we never do adapt to in the sense that we never just accept that it is what it is. It, it always seems so wrong to us. Uh, just this past week, I had the opportunity to meet with a man uh, from India. And he's involved in a ministry in India that includes churches and Bible schools but it also includes orphanages. And he was telling me they have, out of four orphanages, they have 650 children that they minister to. 450 of them are HIV positive. All of the children that are HIV positive will eventually die of uh, complications. Due to that, they will eventually die basically of AIDS. And as he's telling me about this uh, orphanage ministry, he showed me the picture. He was also telling me about his son who was planning to come on the trip, but, but was unable to come. And the reason he couldn't come is because there was a 12 year old boy that was in those final stages of life. And he really felt responsible to be there with this young boy. But, but as, as he was telling me the story, he showed me some pictures of this boy. And, you know, here's just this, this beautiful young boy. Um, and, you know, just, bright, shiny, smiley face. And then I see another picture of him as he begins to be more uh, emaciated as the, the disease you know, takes its effect on him. And then the next picture is 
uh, a picture of his body lying wrapped in a shroud like the shroud that Lazarus would have been wrapped in. And then the final picture is his body being placed on the, the funeral pyre. They don't bury bodies in the, in the ground there. They, they burn their bodies on you know, a, a stack of wood. And as I just walked through that story and those pictures with him, I just thought that very thing of how wrong this is. How, how sad. And even though I didn't, I didn't know the child at all, there, there was just this moment of grief that swept uh, across me because that's what we do in uh, the face of death. The big question as we consider death and the grief that it causes is who can bring an end to this wrongness, this, this thing that's just so wrong? Who can bring an end to it? Who could, could ever put things right to where we don't have to have this experience of grief any longer? And, you know, the truth of the matter is it's already been done. And the story right here, among other uh, stories in the Bible, tell us that it's Jesus who has put things right. And what we see in this story is what Jesus did then, but... It's also a picture, a prophetic picture of what he will ultimately do in regard to those who die and those who grieve. So what I want to do as we've been doing here, I want to just sort of walk us through the text. And there are a number of different things I want to look at. And what I want to start with, though, is looking at something that comes out here in the story that we don't always think so much about. But what comes out in the story is a picture of both the, the deity of Jesus and the humanity of Jesus. Now, the Bible teaches that Jesus is the God-man, meaning that he is fully God and he's also simultaneously fully human. He's not part God and, and part man. He's not God in the disguise of a man but he is fully God, and at the same time, he is fully man. Now, one of the reasons why it's important to understand that is because it helps us understand his compassion and his mercy and his um, ability to be compassionate with us. You know, the author of the letter to the Hebrews, he said, concerning Jesus, speaking of him as our high priest, who is the one who mediates for us, he says, we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses. But you see, if he wasn't really a man, that would be the case. He wouldn't be able to sympathize with our weaknesses. When I was a really young Christian, I sort of thought that, well, you know, the suffering of Jesus probably wasn't all that bad for him because after all, he was God. And as God, he's not going to be affected uh, like I would if I was to die uh, by crucifixion. I didn't realize at that young stage in my walk with the Lord, I didn't realize that, uh, no, Jesus was fully human and he experienced things in a fully human sense. And like I said, this comes out in this story and it comes out in his dealings with these two sisters, with Martha and Mary. And what we're gonna see is that with Martha, he... he it's more of his uh, deity 
divinity is another word for deity. It's more of his divinity that comes through, or we see that. But with Mary, we see more of his humanity. But just for a quick second, let me just um, talk about this uh, just a little bit more. So when we talk about the humanity of Jesus, the, the scriptures teach us that Jesus was you know, like, like we are. There are myths and legends that talk about, you know, Jesus as a baby, the assumption that, you know, even as a baby, he knew everything and he could talk, you know, straight from the womb. And these are myths for sure. Uh, the New Testament, Luke's gospel, for example, tells us that Jesus grew in wisdom and he grew in stature. So he grew in wisdom just like we would go through that natural process of growth and mental development and so forth, Jesus went through the same thing because he was a human being. We uh, read in the story about the, the encounter with the woman at the well. We read that Jesus was tired. Uh, we read that he was hungry. Uh, we know that he fasted 40 days and 40 nights, and after that, he was hungry. So point is, he was human. He was thoroughly human. But of course, he was also divine. He was also God. He was God in human flesh, not God disguised as a man. And when I say God disguised as a man, that would mean that, well, he just looked like he was a man, but he wasn't really a man. No, Jesus was fully a man, but he was also fully God. In the Bible, we have uh, both indirect and direct references to the deity of Christ. I say that because some people say, you know, some people say Jesus wasn't fully human. Other people say, well, he wasn't really God. He was, some cults teach that he was, you know, something in between like an angel or something like that. But we have indirect references in scripture that tell us that he must be God. He has to be God. And then we have the very straightforward statements of Jesus himself claiming to be God. Let me give you a, a quick example of an indirect reference as you're reading through the Gospels, you will find that Jesus says to people, your sins are forgiven you. Now, this created a problem even in his own day, because when he would say that, the religious leaders would immediately ask this question, who does this man think he is? For God alone can forgive sins. And that's true. Only God can forgive sins because sins are ultimately against God. He's the one who established the laws. So how is it that Jesus can forgive sin? Well, the conclusion has to be that he's God. Yes, it was true that only God could forgive sins. It was also true that Jesus was God. So that's just one indirect reference. But then let me give you a couple of more direct references from this gospel in the eighth chapter, the 58th verse of John. Jesus is in a contentious conversation with the religious leaders of the day. He talks about Abraham and he says this, he says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He saw it and was glad. They said to him, you're not even 50 years old. How can you say that you, you know, that Abraham knows anything about you? Abraham lived, uh, you know, 1800 to 2000 years before this. And Jesus said this, he said, before Abraham was, I am. Jesus didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He said, I am. And what he did right there is he took to himself the name of God. Now, in Exodus chapter three, when uh, we have the, the record of Moses encountering God at the burning bush, 
maybe you remember reading it, Moses says to God, when God says, I want you to go to Pharaoh, I want you to go tell him to let my people go. Moses says, who do I say sent me? And the Lord says, say, I am has sent you. Jesus, when he says before Abraham was, I am, he takes the very exact same name with the exact same words. John records it in Greek. The Jews would have uh, used the Greek version of the Old Testament. They would be very familiar with it. Jesus unequivocally claims that he is God. Later on, chapter 10. And by the way, John is the one who really emphasizes the deity of Christ. Even though the other writers refer to it, John seemed to have wanted in his time to make sure that everybody understood that Jesus was no one less than God the Son, the second person of the Trinity, uh, equal to the Father. But in, in the 10th chapter, Jesus said to the religious leaders who were attempting to stone him, he said, many good works I've shown you from the Father. For which of these good works are you stoning me? And they said, we're not stoning you for any good work. We're stoning you for blasphemy because you being a man, make yourself God. So you see, they understood. So even though some modern so-called theologians don't understand that Jesus claimed to be God, um, the people in his day understood it. And for that, they sought to stone him. So Jesus, here in the story, we see both his deity and his humanity. Now, as I said, in his dealings with the two sisters, these two aspects of his nature come out. So let's look first at his dealing with Martha. And as he deals with Martha, we're going to see that it's more of the deity in the sense that, that what he does with Martha is he speaks truth to Martha. What he does with Mary is different. He doesn't really speak anything to Mary. You know what he does instead? He just enters into her sorrow. He enters into her grief. So for, for Martha, he speaks truth. For Mary, he kind of speaks tears, as uh, Tim Keller put it. That, that was the, the way that he spoke. And so as we see with Martha, and, and really quick before we jump into this, let me just say, Martha and Mary, who appear here, uh, and, and we see them interacting with Jesus. There's another place in the Gospels where we also see another interaction with Jesus. And I think it's important to understand their personality in the background. Luke tells us another story about these two sisters. And what he tells us is that there's a certain time where Jesus goes into their home and he's there teaching. And Martha, she is off in the kitchen uh, presumably, you know, dealing with dinner or cleanup or whatever. And Mary is sitting down at the feet of Jesus and she's listening to him talk. And at a certain point, Martha comes in angry. She bursts in and she says, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work? And Jesus says, Martha, you're, you're worried and distracted about many things. Mary has chosen the better part and it's not going to be taken from her. So that's, that's kind of the backdrop for the two women and their different personalities. So Mary, or, or excuse me, Martha, and I keep mixing these names up all the way through. A lady told me after second service, she said, I think you got them mixed up. I said, yes, I think I did many times. So if I'm saying Mary, when I mean Martha, you get it. You know what I'm talking about. So, but we are talking about Martha here, right? So as we pick up the story, uh, let's pick up in verse 17. We read it together. Uh, Lazarus, they called, come, the one you love is sick. 
Jesus delayed. Uh, Lazarus died. Jesus said he's asleep. Um, so we pick up in verse 17. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now, Bethany was near Jerusalem. It was about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now, Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him, but Mary was sitting in the house. Now, Martha said to Jesus, and I think it was in this tone, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now, I know that whatever you ask of God, he will give you. Martha, like her personality was, she met Jesus, and I think very confrontationally at this point. I mean, after all, they sent a message to Jesus much earlier, but he didn't come. And so Martha is, she's upset. And, you know, just on a bit of a side note here, one of the things this shows us is that God can handle us being upset. You know, it's okay. There, there are times when our circumstances are such that, uh, you know, we might just feel like, you know, Lord, I, I don't get this. And we have biblical precedent for it. The psalmist said stuff like that many, many times over. Jeremiah the prophet on one occasion, he says, Lord, you tricked me. You know, you, you fooled me into doing this. And I, I'm never going to speak in your name again. That's it. I'm done. And of course, he moved on from that. But, uh, but my point is, you know, Mary is not happy here with Jesus. Lord, if you would have been here, my brother wouldn't have died. So Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said, yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the son of God who is to come into the world. So, so here we see Jesus. He is, he is addressing Mary with truth. And when we're talking about grief and we're talking about those who are suffering grief, of course, we need to speak truth. Now, it's important that we speak it in the right tone, and it's also important that we speak it at the right time. You know, sometimes I talk to people who are going to maybe attend a, a, a funeral, a memorial service, or I talk to somebody who knows that a, you know, somebody close is dying and they're probably going to be there uh, as that transpires. And they often say to me, they say, you know, I don't know. I just feel so awkward because I don't know what to say. You know what? I'm right with you. I don't know what to say. But you know what I tell them? Don't say anything. You, you don't necessarily have to say anything. Now, there, sometimes, you know, you do say something. And there's a time and a place to say something. Uh, but it just depends on the circumstance. It depends on the people. In a second, Jesus is dealing with Mary is different than it is with Martha. Jesus doesn't really say anything. But he says something to Martha. Because of her disposition, Martha needed to be reminded of the truth. And oh, what a great truth. I'm really glad that Jesus spoke to Martha. I'm really glad that he, she approached him in this way because it gave Jesus the opportunity to say in what is, in my opinion, the most profound thing Jesus ever said. And that's a, you know, a pretty serious statement there because Jesus said many, many profound things. But to me, to say this, I am the resurrection and the life. 
You know, Martha, she's thinking, she's, of course, Jewish. She knows from the scriptures there's going to be a resurrection someday way out in the future. Who knows how long that's going to be? She says, Lord, I know my brother's going to rise again then. Jesus says, Martha, you don't get it. I'm the resurrection. It's not this event that's going to happen out there that's going to raise your brother. It's me that's going to raise your brother. And when that event does happen out there, it's going to happen because of me. And what a profound thing. Who has ever said anything like this? Nobody has ever said anything like this. And as a, because of the things that Jesus said and because of this particular thing Jesus said, um, it was C.S. Lewis who popularized the, the, what's called the trilemma. The trilemma being that Jesus, uh, when, you're, when you're faced with the person of Jesus, you can't, you can't just accept him as was common in Lewis's day and as is still common today. You can't just accept him as, uh, as like a good teacher. Um, or like a philosopher, somebody who had a great moral perspective. He's either God or he's none of those things. So the trilemma is that he is either a liar, he is a lunatic, or he is the Lord. It's one of the three. And if he's not the Lord, then he's something else. He's a liar or a lunatic. Because you couldn't say he's a good teacher if he lied about things, which he would have been lying if he wasn't really the Lord, right? Um, you couldn't say if he's a good teacher just if he was a, a lunatic. So Jesus here makes claims that no one else has ever made. I am the resurrection and the life. He speaks truth to Martha. Now, let's go to Mary. So as we go to Mary, and we'll pick up in verse 32, then when Mary came where Jesus was, she, and saw him, notice a different posture. She fell down at his feet. So Martha seems to come confrontationally, sort of a, you know, standing there with Jesus. Why didn't you come? Mary comes and she falls at his feet. In a sense, it's kind of their personalities, right? Mary's in the kitchen. She's doing all the work. Mary, uh, Martha, excuse me. Mary's sitting at the feet of Jesus. You know, many times, uh, if, you, if you're teaching on Moses, you have a tendency to call him Noah. Teaching on Noah, you're always calling him Moses. That kind of stuff drives me crazy. And sometimes I hear people on the radio, they're teaching on Moses and they keep calling him Noah. Or they're teaching on Noah and they keep calling him Moses. And I hear him and I think, gosh, those guys, can't they get it right? And then guess what? I hear myself on the radio, I'm doing the same thing. And I'm like, how did I do that? Martha and Mary, it's two M's, so it's kind of easier to mix them up. But, but with Mary, so she falls down at his feet saying to him, Lord, now look, notice she says the same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother wouldn't have died. But I think her tone was different. I mean, she's at the feet of Jesus. She's just like she always is. You know, it, it's almost like Mary, her personality is a personality that needs an explanation. You know, some people are like that. Some people need an explanation and some people don't need an explanation. They just need someone to enter into their experience with them. And so we see Jesus doing both things here. And this is where we see his humanity. So look what happens. So Jesus, when he saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, 
He groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. Verse 35, Jesus wept. Jesus wept. Now again, look at what he says to Martha and look at what he does with Mary. He doesn't say anything. He just weeps. He just enters in. Now, of course, Jesus was not weeping uh, because of the the circumstances that were, you know, irreversible. Because obviously Jesus knew that in just uh, a few moments, all of this sorrow was going to be turned to joy because he was going to raise Lazarus from the dead. He knew that. But yet he's, he enters into the, the moment with Mary. He enters into her grief. He enters into her suffering. And he there with her, he sees all of this and he weeps. And then it says this, in verse 36, it says, then the Jews said, see how he loved him. And some said, could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this, this man from dying. Then Jesus again, groaning in himself came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. Now notice in verse 33. And now in verse 38, it says twice that Jesus groaned. This is really an interesting word. And I don't know why the, those who translated the Bible into English, I don't know why they translate it this way here. This, this same word is translated differently in other places. The word means more literally, it means to be filled with anger or to be filled with indignation. Uh, the word is a combination of words and one part of the word actually is used in another context, not in the, in the scriptures, but it's, it's used in Greek to refer to uh, a snorting, angry bull. So here you have two times it said regarding Jesus that he groaned in his spirit. Jesus is angry. Who's he angry at? Well, he's certainly not angry at Martha and Mary. He's not angry at the people around him. Who is he angry at? He's angry at death. He's angry at sin. He's undoubtedly probably angry at Satan who brought this whole mess into existence. And what we see here, among other things, we see Jesus is having a confrontation with the powers of darkness. He's having a confrontation with death itself. And in the face of it, as he sees the brokenheartedness, as he sees the suffering, as he sees the grief, he's angry. But you know, Jesus gets angry and it's good because he does something about it. He doesn't just get angry and then, uh, you know, he doesn't walk away uh, just, you know, he's, he's angry and that's it. No, Jesus is going to confront death head on here and so we see that that's exactly what he does. He then said, take away the stone. Martha, the sister of him who was dead, the one who said, we know that you're the Christ. I know that you're the Christ who has come into the world. But Jesus says, take away the stone. And she says, Lord, that's not a good idea. By this time, there is a stench for he has been dead for four days. Everybody knows the body has already been, uh, the body's already decomposing. And so Martha, even though she believes 
the essential thing that Jesus is the Christ, of course, she doesn't have any idea what the Lord is going to do here. I'm sure like in so many cases that we see in the Bible, the very thing that the Lord did was just completely um, unexpected. Nobody thought this. Lord, what do you mean roll away the stone? Move. What? The, the body's already decomposing. Why, why would we do that? It's almost like, she, well, why would we want to do that? But what does Jesus say? He says, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Then they took away the stone from the place where the dead man was lying. And Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I said this, that they might believe that you sent me. Now, when he had said these things, he cried with a loud voice, Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out bound hand and foot with grave clothes and his face was wrapped with a cloth. And Jesus said, loose him and let him go. Amazing. Absolutely amazing. Now, remember, those of you who have read your New Testament, you know, this is not the first person that Jesus raised from the dead. Jesus earlier raised a young girl from the dead up in Galilee, in uh, Capernaum, the, the daughter of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue. He raised her from the dead. But remember... Um, he said about her, he said, she's not dead. She's asleep. And they, they mocked him. They laughed him to scorn. They knew that she was dead, but he just woke her up. Um, that was up in the North in, in sort of the middle of the country, Nain, as Jesus is coming down, uh, they, they pass a procession and there's a, a young man who's being, uh, let out to be buried. His coffin is passing by. He's the, the son of a woman. He's her only son. She's a widow. Jesus says to them, stop. He comes over. He touches the young man and he raises him up and he re restores him to his mother. But this resurrection to me is the most, I mean, <laughs> to say it's the most significant is really not the right terminology, right? Any resurrection from the dead is pretty significant. But the significance of this one is the context of where it happened. It happened just outside of Jerusalem. And it's also the timing in which it happened. Those other resurrections took place kind of earlier in the ministry of Jesus, where he was still um, relatively popular. But now this resurrection has taken place later, where he has now become a threat to the religious leaders and they're wanting to destroy him. They're wanting to kill him. And they're wanting to promote the idea that he's some sort of a false prophet or a false teacher. And so it's here, just outside of Jerusalem, that he performs this most radical of miracles in raising Lazarus from the dead. He calls him forth from the grave. And... Uh, he was indeed alive because chapter 12, if you just look at the first two verses, it's so fascinating. It says, then six days before the Passover, so a little while after this, Jesus came to Bethany again. He'd apparently left between now and then. Now he's come back. Uh, and listen to what it says, where Lazarus was who had been dead, whom he had raised from the dead. There they made a supper and Martha served and Lazarus was one of those who sat at the table with him. Where in the history of the world, in any recorded 
account of life on planet earth have you ever read about a guy who was dead and now he's sitting at the table having dinner? You don't read that anywhere because it never happens. People die and guess what? They stay dead unless Jesus is around. If Jesus is around, it's a different story. Now, Lazarus, Lazarus is for us, he's a picture. He is a picture of the future of all who believe. All who believe in Jesus will likewise one day rise again. The only difference between uh, Lazarus and those who will rise again in the future is that Lazarus rose again, uh, rose from the dead, but then he died again. But those who rise again now will rise to never die again. But this is what we have to remember. You see, in the face of death, being surrounded by this, and it's the inescapable reality that we all live with, that we are going to die, that the people around us are going to die, the people that we love and care about, they are going to die. But yet, for those who believe in Jesus, they're going to live again. They're going to live again, just like Lazarus lived again, and just like he sat at the table So remember that one passage where Jesus said he's speaking to uh, Israel, the nation, and he's, he's lamenting the fact that they're rejecting him. He says, many will come from the east and the west, and they will sit down at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but the sons of the kingdom will be cast out. That was because Israel was rejecting him. But he, but he's talking about Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They've been dead for centuries at least from the human standpoint, Jesus said, oh no, they're very much alive. And there's coming a time when everybody's going to sit down just like they did with Lazarus here at the table and enjoy a great feast together. That's the future. That's what we know to be the reality because of who Jesus is and what he did. And let's remember, as we look at this, you see, Jesus makes this extraordinary claim, unlike nothing we've ever heard, He doesn't just say, I'm the resurrection and the life. What does he do? He proves it. He calls Lazarus out of the grave. But then even more powerfully than that, just a short time later, he will himself be in a grave because he's died on a cross. But what happens? He rises up from the grave. And remember, he told the men of his generation, he told them this would be the ultimate proof of his authority. They asked him when he cleansed the temple, they said, who gave you this authority? to do this. And Jesus said, destroy this temple. He was speaking of his body. And in three days, I'll raise it. That's my authority. So Jesus doesn't just claim he's the resurrection. He proves he's the resurrection by raising Lazarus and by rising from the dead. So Lazarus in Lazarus, we see the future of all who believe. We also receive hope for those who grieve. Because your loved ones are not dead. They're sleeping. Their bodies are asleep, but their spirits are present with the Lord. And and this is the reality. Jesus said, whoever lives and believes in me will never die. He meant that. We don't die. We call it dying because we're just so used to referring to it like that. But Jesus says, no, those who live and believe in me, they never die. When you take your last breath on earth, you are simultaneously taking your first breath and 
heaven, so to speak. I don't know if we even breathe there, but if we need to, <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying? You, you just transition. It's like a hallway. You're, you're walking, you know, from one room, this earthly life, here's a room and you exit the room, you go down the hallway, you open the door and you walk into eternity. That, that's what, that's what death is. And so for those that have lost loved ones and oh, it, it, it's, it's so painful. But like Paul said, we, we do sorrow. Of course we sorrow. Just like Mary did. Just like Martha did. And Jesus understood that. He entered into the sorrow. He wept. But we don't sorrow like those who have no hope. You see, we sorrow because we're temporarily removed. My friend, um, Mike Neglia, uh, maybe some of you guys saw this on Instagram. Mike is, is a good friend. He pastors a church in, in Ireland. Uh, he came to speak at our conference this week. He was staying with me at my house. He said the night before, he said, Brian, you want to go running in the morning? I said, no, I'm not going to run this week. I'm too busy. You go run by yourself. That morning, I watched him walk out my front door and go on a run. Two hours later, he's not back. What happened? Did he decide to run 20 miles or what? What, what happened to him? Well, you know what happened to him? He was hit by a car. And I get here and I get a note. Uh, Mike Neglia hit by a car in the hospital. Call this number. He was hit by a car going 45 to 50 miles an hour. He does not have a single broken bone. He did not have a concussion. All he got was scrapes and bruises. And, And the Lord just miraculously sustained him. But this is the thing. We all thought... My goodness, he could have, and even the doctor said, you should be dead. So all of this to say, I was visiting in the hospital the other night and I I reached over and I kind of hugged him and I said, I'm glad you're still here. You know, obviously for you, it would have been better to go. But for us, we would have been really, really sad had you gone. And that, that's the reality. But for him, it would have been better because he'd be with the Lord. He would be in that place where there's no sorrow, suffering, crying, pain, or, or any of those things. And so, so that's what we, that's the hope that we have for those who grieve. This is not the end. With Jesus, there's a future, and it's a future beyond the grave. With Jesus, there is the promise of a reunion where we will be reunited to never be separated again. That's what Jesus brought into the world. And I want to close by going back to the story I was telling you initially about the, the pastor and the, the children in India. And be, because it just speaks so loudly, you know, I'm looking at these pictures and I'm looking at this video clip and I'm seeing all of these, um, you know, beautiful, beautiful children. And, and then I saw this one young girl and he showed a picture of her, showed when they first... Uh, got her as a little girl and how she looked like she was on death's doorstep there. But then it kind of showed pictures of her through her life. And then she just looked stronger and healthier and more vibrant and beautiful. And then it showed a picture of her. Uh, Today, she's about 20 years old. She's a nurse now. And there was a whole group of nurses there together. They're all, they're all formerly the, you know, these children that came in with HIV. Uh, They all have a death sentence 
And yet as nur- they've, they've trained as nurses because they can go and they can touch anybody and not worry about it because they know that they're, they already have the death sentence. So they go out through all the country to the different orphanages and places and they just minister until the time comes for them to die. And so I said, because I was a little bit um, curious about, it, it almost looked like, well, it looks like these, they're healed. It looks like they, they've gotten beyond it. You know, you can live with HIV. There's plenty of people in America that do that. But he said, no, no, we have no medicine. We have, we have nothing like that. He said, they do not live beyond 22 years old. And he, and he pointed to the girl, and this is the way he put it. He said, very soon she will go to be with God. That's their perspective. She will go to be with God. And then he told me this. He said, when one of them, when it becomes apparent that their, their time is fastly approaching to leave, what they do is they, they gather with them and they spend as much time with them and they just pour into them just the truth and, and God's love. And he said this. He said that when they when they are in that transitional moment, they are either singing praise, reciting scripture, or speaking or whispering the name of Jesus. And then he told me, he said, the young boy that you saw that passed away, he came to the very end and he could no longer speak. And he said, my son whispered Jesus in his ear and he took his last breath. And, you know, I'm looking at all that he's shown me. I'm looking at these pictures. I'm looking at these beautiful children. And I'm thinking about this this reality of death. And I'm thinking in my mind about that little body wrapped in that shroud and lying on that funeral pyre. And on the one hand, I'm thinking, gosh, how wrong this is, how tragic this is, how sad this is. But on the other hand, I'm thinking, thank you, Jesus. This is what you dealt with. You know, sometimes people say stupid stuff like, well, what did Jesus ever do? You know, he didn't change the world. Oh, really? Tell those 450 HIV children that he didn't change the world. You bet he changed the world. He changed the universe. He changed everything. He conquered death. He is the resurrection and the life. And as he said right here, he who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. And oh, how we thank God for Martha and for Mary and for Lazarus. And what was true for them that day is true for us today and will always be true. I talked to several people this morning already. We've had two services, right? I've talked to several people who said to me something like, you know, my son died a while back and this message has brought so much encouragement to me. It's brought so much comfort to me. And that's what the truth does, the truth of the resurrection. I'm, I'm going to close with this. My, my mom, well, my grandfather died many, many years ago. My mom had lost her mom when I was two, and she was just 20. And when her, when her dad died, she was very, very sad about that for quite some time. And she told me that one day in, you know, just kind of her ongoing grief. She said one morning she woke up and she just had this passage of scripture in her mind. She didn't even know what it was. And it was second Corinthians chapter five. I think it's verse eight. So she, because it was in her mind, she went and she opened her Bible and she read it to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that word just brought her peace that she knew 
that everything was okay with her dad, that he was present with the Lord. And that's the hope that we have. That's the truth that we go through life with. And that's the comfort that we find for ourselves. And it's the comfort we share with others in times of grief. So Lord, we thank you that you conquered death. Oh Lord, as we sometimes hear people say foolish things like you didn't do much. Oh Lord, we thank you that you did that you did so much. Lord, that you came and you destroyed the greatest enemy of all. You destroyed death and you proved it by rising from the dead. And Lord, may we just live with that reality. May it be a constant uh, reminder to us. May it be a constant uh, word of encouragement. Lord, may we just, even as we think about our own futures, Lord, know that our future is bright because it's a future with you in your kingdom eternally. Because you live, we shall live also. Oh, we thank you for that. We praise you. And Lord, I would pray today for any that don't have this hope as their hope, that they would lay hold of it today. In Jesus' name, amen.